Hey everybody, this is Ernie Johnson, and welcome to EJ's Game Plan. It's your guide to working in sports media. Today we'll be talking to Reese Davis, an ESPN College Game Day host. I was talking with Ernie this morning, and I'm looking forward to doing this. We'll we'll certainly do some college football questions and so forth, but um, at the same time, for the most part, um, you know, I'd like to give first priority to those of you who want to do this for a living. And uh, I think it's really cool what Ernie's done over the last several weeks to bring people into business to be able to talk to you guys and. Uh, and maybe get some insight, or maybe not, or maybe figure out how you don't want to do it <laughs> after um, after all of this. So we're a couple minutes away. I'll give everybody a couple more minutes to join in, and uh, and I'm really glad, really glad you're all here. I hope everybody's uh, safe and healthy and dealing with this quarantine as as well as you possibly can. So. All right, you know what? A couple minutes early, and uh, Homer614 wants to know, is it ever too late to get in the business? Um, look, I would. it depends on the level that would make you happy to achieve. If you, um, you, know, if you aspire to have a, a role like, like Ernie or like I have, um, you know, Sooner's better than later, obviously, but I think there's always, there are always opportunities for people to get into the business later on if you are considering a career change. It's a little tough right now, I think, just from a business model aspect of it and the difficulties that some companies are having, but I don't think it's too late. There are also a lot of outlets out there. There are outlets like this, where you can hone your craft and have an opportunity to get into the business. Um, incoming journalism students from Ohio State. See, I'm learning to scroll on this and do it live. Tips for getting involved. If you're, a, if you're a college student, as an incoming journalism student at Ohio State, Matt is, my first suggestion to you is to school paper, news, uh, radio station, if they have a television program, get in and do anything. It can't hurt you to learn how the business works on the outside. Write as much as possible. If you have an opportunity to write for the school newspaper, it will help you if you are in broadcasting. Obviously, if you're going into print journalism, then obviously you'll be writing. But if you want to, if you want to be a broadcaster, I think one of the mistakes I made in college was that I did not do that. And I like to write but I had a complete misperception of how the business worked and thought that, you know, you get your education, then you do your internship, and then you uh, start getting experience. Sort of figured it out about halfway through college, but you're coming in now, so I would start just as soon as possible. I, I appreciate uh, Aaron saying that uh, he misses my voice on Saturday mornings. Man, I am hopeful that that things will allow us to get to the point that we can uh, that we can have college game day at least at some point this fall. I don't think anybody knows the answer to when we'll be able to do that, but uh, hopefully hopefully we'll be able to do it we'll be able to do it soon. Homer brings up a great point in Jason Fitz, who has made the transition, has done quite well. Jason, uh, meaning a guy who entered the business a little bit later on after having a, a different kind of career. Jason's a really smart, 
talented guy, and he applied himself, and he dove in head first, and he didn't really, um, didn't really allow himself an out, you know, or didn't make excuses for it. He just pursued what he wanted to do. So uh, I think he's a good example of a guy. Uh, maybe I, maybe I mistook the question as someone being my age and entering the business, which is getting older every day. But uh, yeah, if you're still, if you're still in your twenties, thirties uh, or something like that, you're, you're good. There's plenty of time for it then. Uh, this is a good question here. Uh, someone's asking, how do I handle an awkward interview? Maybe someone that doesn't like the questions you're asking. Um, first of all, I think interviewing is something that I'm really fascinated by. We had, we had a man who used to work for us at ESPN by the name of John Sawatsky, who is, uh, well-renowned in this country and Canada and, and maybe in Europe too, as perhaps the interview guru. And he had a set of, I won't say rules, let's call them guidelines for questions and this, there's much more to it than this, but in a condensed version, he said your best questions should be open, they should be neutral, and they should be lean, meaning short, as short as possible. And open-ended questions, meaning try your best to avoid yes-no type questions. You should not assign value to a question, rather just ask a question in a neutral fashion so that you will give the subject the opportunity to answer and they should be lean. And I, I, the one thing about taking John Sawatsky's class years ago is that it has forever ruined my ability, in most cases, to enjoy televised interviews because these rule, rules get broken all the time. And when that happens, it puts the interview subject on the defensive. And when that happens, then they... Interview subjects will always try to make themselves look good. That's, that's human nature. We all do that. Those of us who are doing the interviewing try to make ourselves look good. But an interview can quickly get derailed if it becomes apparent to the subject that you have a position that is counter to his. So if you can ask the question in a neutral fashion, then you get the truth or you get that person's perception of the truth. And if you have facts, then would you can form more neutral questions through your preparation, and then you can get him to tell the story and you will have a better understanding of what reality is in a particular subject um, and, what, and what others might be. John shows this clip uh, from a 60 Minutes reporter years and years ago interviewing Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy at the time, his, it was in the newspapers and it had been rumored that his he was running for president, and his marriage was uh, was in trouble. And it's a you know much different time back then in the early '70s, where that might have been more of an issue than it is now. And the first question he was asked was, "How do you think the media has treated your family?" And the response was, um, he thought that they had been treated fairly by and large. That uh, you know, they he understood the fascination or the reasons that the media covered his family. The follow-up question is then, how would you describe the state of your marriage? Okay, now see what's happened there, if you think about it, is that, and somebody shouldn't have asked an interview question in this one because there are a lot of questions uh, piling up and waiting, but what has happened there is 
in that case, that particular instance, Ted Kennedy assigned himself to a position. The media, by and large, had been fair with him in their questioning and in their coverage of his family, which allowed the reporter then to follow the question that was newsworthy at the moment, the, the state of the marriage and why. And Ted Kennedy had to answer the question. Um, I don't even really recall if we saw the complete answer, but that is interviewing technique that is good. He didn't, the reporter didn't take a position. Uh, the reporter didn't attack him because of his perception or his uh, uh, approach to a story. I'm trying to avoid, avoid that four-letter word, B-I-A-S, that is overused. But that, that is how you have to approach an interview that is potentially awkward, in which there might be questions that are uncomfortable. You do your preparation, you know your subject matter, you know what the goal is, which is to get the truth, not to prove a point or to get a person's reasoning for their actions. And so you try to ask the open, neutral, lean questions. The answer to the question, which I just gave you, was certainly not lean, so I apologize for that. Carson wants to know what has been my favorite part of what I do. I'm very fortunate that I get to cover two sports that I love with people that I like to work with, uh, elite professional teammates, both on the air and off. And I think just that camaraderie and being able to follow and be close to uh, the two sports that I care the most about, college football and college basketball. I say um, a lot of times that I like all sports. I love two of them. Actually, I love three. I love uh, college football, college basketball, and college baseball when my son's playing. So um, that is, uh, those are my three favorite sports. I get to cover two of them, and then I just get to be a dad for the other one. So that's that's probably my my favorite favorite part. Uh, let's see, what are some things you do to help manage your schedule come November, December, and January? With I think there is some more to that question, but see, I'm not as not as good as following. But I imagine the follow to that question was having uh, college football and college basketball going. Um, I think it needs to be a lifestyle, and I know that sounds a little cliched, but if you're really interested and passionate about something, you're not just sort of picking it up. You know, you're sort of following it year round. I'm going. I'll be completely honest with you guys that. When the basketball season starts, the one the, the biggest challenge for me is not learning, you know, the players. It's like after having spent several months where when you think of, uh, you know, when you think of Michigan, you immediately think Jim Harbaugh, then flipping that to Juwan Howard or whoever the players might be, but thinking in a basketball context instead of the football context. But I think in terms of managing the schedule, you just have to try to keep up. Um, obviously, you know football, but make sure that you're not coming into um, basketball season having not watched, uh, having you know, not watched enough college basketball. There were. Uh, we'll go back to the interview subject because it's something I like. Chan wants to know who was my toughest interview and why. I'll probably think of another one later, but one that jumps to mind is uh, Mike Leach. Um, and it was Mike, right after Mike had the issues with Craig James' son at uh, Texas Tech. Craig, at the time, had been an on-air partner of mine, being uh, uh, my analyst on Thursday Night Football when I was doing play-by-play -play for college football. And I had a good relationship with Mike and through some, uh, you know, through some 
mutual uh, mutual business people, we arranged an interview. It was not in person. It was uh, via satellite. And I had to cut him off several times, and he got mad at me uh, for cutting him off because he was going on very, very long answers, as you might imagine, from Mike. And at one point, I told him, I said, you've been talking, you know, he got on me for cutting him off. I said, you've been talking for three and a half minutes. There are a lot of things that we need to dive into here. So I think in, in some ways, that's one of the first ones that uh, I think of as being tough. And I think Mike, you know, Mike and I have a very good relationship now and, uh, and, and did then, I think. So, but that was, um, that was, that was a tough one. I'm sure there have been others that come to mind. Um, Mark Emmert, I interviewed uh, Mark Emmert not long after the, the Penn State situation. And that's an example of where you have to put your uh, judgments of the situation aside. While certainly everything that happened at, at Penn State with the Sandusky situation was heinous, no one disagrees with that. I didn't think it was in the NCAA's purview to to deal with those types of things. So, you know, there, there are a lot of them like that over the years, I think, that... Um, and you have to try to be neutral, as neutral as you can be when you're interviewing a subject. Uh, your interview subject may have a different perception or different take on, um, you know, on a particular issue than what you what you may want to. Okay, how did you get your broadcasting role started? I'm an intern for 24/7 Sports and want to do studio work. Um, I'd done some radio when I was uh, in college at Alabama. And I was I did an internship for the CBS affiliate, which was in Tuscaloosa at the time. I think now that it's a Birmingham Tuscaloosa combination station, but at the time there was a CBS affiliate in Tuscaloosa, and I did my internship there. And once I finished, they hired me to do some news reporting. Prior to that, during my internship, I did have a couple of weekend stories that got on, but I I would sit in for the noon and the 5 p.m newscast and I was assigned to roll the tapes. You had to cue the old three quarter inch tapes to the exact proper frame, make sure that you, you know, had enough pre-roll on there for the director to be able to hit it, hit it just right. So you learned a little bit about what, you know, about what was important in the, in the control room. And then eventually, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to uh, produce or be a director. I wouldn't be good at that, I don't think, even though I, there are some elements of being a producer that come along with being a host of a show like I do, and, and you know, I work very closely and think I have a fairly big say in what goes on the air in my shows in terms of producing, but I didn't want to exclusively be a producer or director, and I was able to do some on-air stories, both covering news stories and sports stories when I was in Tuscaloosa and went from there to Columbus, Georgia, where I was exclusively um, uh, on the air and, and moved up to Flint, Michigan, and then finally to ESPN. So I think what you have to do is find, a, this sounds trite, but you have to find a way to get on the air, whether it's a, your place of employee in the moment or someone else who will let you. And the good news is now with all the technology, there, there's a much easier way to get a reel that has been out there that people can see. So whatever the first thing you have to do is start doing it wherever that may be whoever will let you on the air get on the air that's uh that's how you get started what is the number one trait that is needed to be successful on the air i think the i think the most successful people are genuine now that 
that genuine nature can be many things. It has to be true to that person's personality. If they are bombastic, then they need to be bombastic. If they are uh, measured and reserved, as, uh, as I think I tend to be for the most part, it's not that I'm not passionate, it's just I try to see both sides of the story. Uh, honestly, I think Ernie is, uh, approaches his job in that same way. I think Mike Carrico approaches his job in a, a very similar fashion in terms of being measured. All of us are really passionate. All of us have strong opinions about things. All of us, I think, are judicious in when to use those. Uh, others, particularly analysts, um, their personalities are more geared to giving you that instantaneous, visceral, sometimes emotional reaction. If that is your personality, you should stay true to it. Um, I think the best description I ever heard of someone talking about someone who is successful on the air is that you are an exaggerated version of yourself. Not grossly exaggerated, but somewhat exaggerated because his, his point was it was an old veteran news anchor in Detroit by the name of Bill Bonds, who is a legend in the state of Michigan. But his point was that most of us, if we were just ourselves the way we are, you know, we're sitting around the living room with our families or friends or whatever, back when we used to be able to do that, um, we're probably too boring, you know, to be on TV. So you have to be a little bit exaggerated, but if you're trying to create and develop this persona, it is probably going to come off to the audience in most occasions as being fake. An example of that is early on when I first started doing Sports Center and I started getting Sports Center reps, there was a lot of internal pressure and self-imposed pressure to come up with the next great catchphrase. That was a big catchphrase era. It was Dan and Keith era. It was uh, when Stewart was just starting to do Sports Center and everybody was looking for the one that everybody would uh, it would resonate with everybody. And I came to a realization at some point during that, and I probably pulled a groin a few times trying to find the next great catchphrase, but I came to the realization that there are times when I can say something that is funny, but I'm not naturally a funny guy. You know, Scott Van Pelt is naturally funny. I can say things that are funny occasionally. When I think they're funny, I'm not afraid to say it, but I don't, you know, I'm not a naturally... Uh, naturally funny guy, I don't think, or overly funny. You know, Scott's brilliant. He's a, he's a really, really funny dude, and he plays to that aspect of his personality. That's the way he is all the time. He's very genuine, and I think that is the, that's the biggest key to success is whatever your personality is, play to it. Okay, Homer said, by the way, we're going back and we're tying threads together. I think Homer asked about if it's too late to get in the business. 42? Go for it, man. Uh, find find somebody that'll let you on the air. Maybe do it as a sidelight for a while. Uh, you know what? What I know we're in a little bit of a uncertain state about which sports will be played and when and, and all of that. But you can get started depending on where you live doing like high school football in certain areas of the country. I mean, you know, I'll be someplace in Texas or down south and on Friday nights when I'm in the hotel getting ready for game day I mean televising high school football games which you know live and not like the big ones like we do at ESPN just a game of the week or a couple of them if you have opportunities like that uh, uh, do that um, talk radio 
podcast. You know, maybe start one and and see where it goes from there. And I think there are a lot of avenues to get started, no matter what your no matter what your age. Somebody sent Lee Corso the goat. I would agree with that. I don't know how to respond to it other than saying yes. I I would agree. Um, here's a good one. Any advice when it comes to balancing broadcast and print journalism in high school? Or I mean, I, I beg your pardon, in college. I don't know that I would say it's necessary to balance anything except make sure you write a lot and read a lot. The better command you have of the language through reading and writing, the better you're going to be when you are preparing scripts for broadcast. So I don't, I don't think there's anything that would, um, that would be more important than developing your ability to write. It is a different style of writing for print journalism as opposed to when you go on the air, you know, even to the most fundamental thing of all, past tense versus present tense. But I think it's also much, it, and it has evolved even during my career, which is, you know, now I guess about 32 years long, starting uh, from when I got out of school. It has evolved into a far less formal way of conversing, but I still think it's important to have command of the language. and. Uh, I think that all you can do with print would be important, but don't completely leave out the broadcast side. But I do think probably the writing uh, aspect is the most uh, is the most important thing. Um, what this is a good one. What and I keep saying that. What are some anchoring tips for shows like College Game Day that last two plus hours, three hour show every Saturday for College Game Day, and you have to keep your energy up. Um, there are some realities for a show like that. We would love for everyone to turn in, tune in at 8.59.59 Eastern Time and stay until, you know, one second after the show ends and not miss one second of the show. But the reality of it is, is that people are getting up and getting their kids ready for their sporting events. They're making pancakes. They're getting ready to drive to their favorite schools uh, and that game and watch it. So they're watching in, in pieces. They're distracted. So you have to you have to remind yourself that every segment, every conversation of the show is important. You have to maintain energy. And I think the easiest way to maintain energy for me is to be prepared. Um, I mentioned earlier that the preparation goes on all week. I can't tell you the number of um, conversations, phone calls, emails, texts that go on. Uh, particularly between my producer, Jim Gallero, and me, but also among all of us who are on the set as well. The show is completely unscripted. We have a rundown, we call, which is some, I think some outlets like to call it a format, but whatever it is, it's a guideline. It's a blueprint for what we are going to talk about, but it is not scripted that, you know, Kirk will say this and Des will say that, and then David will say something else. It is subjects basically games, topics, things that need to be discussed. And it's a, it's something that if I hear Kirk say something, I need to have the freedom and the knowledge and the preparation to be able to respond, whether it's to agree with it, whether it's to challenge it, or whether it's to bring up a different aspect of it. And the harsh reality of preparing for a show like Game Day is that probably 90 to 95% of the stuff that you prepare and the notes that you make and the anecdotes and the stories and the things you've been told and the things you've noticed and things you've read, never make the show. And so you have to, 
you have to keep your energy up first and realize that people are, they may be tuning in at 1048. And even if you're tired after being on for an hour and 48 minutes, you still have to have that energy. You have to, you have to, it has to be natural. Most of the time, that's not really a problem for me because I'm, I'm having a really good time doing what I'm doing. But I think to do that, you have to be prepared. The only thing that ever scares me about going on television is going on television unprepared. That's different from, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to misspeak. You're, um, there's going to be, uh, you know, a, a mixture of names, you know, uh, it, it just, it happens. You hate it when it does, but that's not the type of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about understanding your subject matter, knowing the games inside out, and then um, not beating yourself up for too long if you have a slip of the tongue or whatever it might be. Uh, what methods do you use? Uh, a. Parsons, uh, something, okay, anyway, he knows who he is. What methods do you use to get beyond coach speak, i.e. we're just taking it one day at a time? You know, that, that's one of my favorites because I don't think anywhere in the history of man has anyone ever been allowed to take it two days at a time, nor are they allowed to play two opponents at the same time. And they say, we're just focusing on this opponent and playing one opponent at a time. It depends on the coach, to be honest with you. Some of them are going to answer the question by saying whatever they want to, no matter what you ask. They have a point, a message they want to get out, and they're going to twist it that way. Uh, my buddy John Calipari might be the master of this. We did college game day basketball at Kentucky a few years back, and John had been on. He's always a great guest, very insightful, very honest, and usually answers questions, but he... Um, we were walking out afterwards in different places and John sees me down the uh, breezeway and he goes, Hey Reese, was that all right? Uh, yeah, John, it was great. You're always great on there. And he goes, ah, you know how it is. It doesn't really matter what you ask me. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And you know, that's, I think that's really true for a lot of coaches. There are some that have the reputation for having coach speak, but if you know how to listen to them and if you listen closely to what they say, they rarely engage in it. Nick Saban is exhibit A there. He, he does not often deviate from the message he wants to get across. And I think that if you listen closely, he might talk about process and, and relative doing things relative to what we'd like to do to achieve the things that we're trying to achieve and all of that. But there's always substance there. And if you ask good questions, typically you will get substance. I would say uh, methods to get beyond coach speak would start with this. Ask insightful questions. They don't have to be, uh, hey, coach, what are you going to do when they when they send that uh, uh, red dog blitz? Or, you know, what are you going to do? You know, and 42% uh, of the time, this team, you know, goes, uh, goes cover three when faced with the third and seven. I'm not talking about that. Just ask insightful questions. Know what you, what your goal wants to be or what your goal is and what you want your goal to be. And the one thing I would say that I absolutely hate, and I know you guys, if I ever slip up and do this, I will be called on it and I will deserve it. I hate when people say, talk about this. No, we're supposed to ask them a question about whatever it is. Coach, talk about the first half. No. Coach? You didn't convert a third down in the entire first half. Why? What went wrong on third down? 
you had a, a second and one from the 42-yard line. Your quarterback took a, took a sack when you tried to throw deep. What went wrong? Now, you may get an angry reaction. Well, the guy got sacked, and that's true. But most of the time, you'll have an opportunity to get something uh to get something insightful there. So that would be the thing. Don't say, talk about. And something else too, I know some people get mad with, uh, with the how do you feel question or what is this like question. In the aftermath of a championship, sometimes that's what you want to hear. Confetti flying, trophy being raised. It's an emotional moment. You know, then you don't need to go to the you know, to the third and sixth play, you know, unless there was a great moment in the game that might have led to that. But it's a it's a fair question right then in moments like that. Uh, what's the significance of this? You know, and, and a lot of times it'll you'll you'll get a very insightful answer from things like that. <laughs> what is that? Off the air, who talks the most on college game day? You're listening to me, so it's probably me. Um no, all of us have been, as they say in the greatest movie ever made, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? All of us has have been endowed with the gift of gab. So uh, none of us are very... Um, appreciate that you guys are patient with my... I'm decent technically, but I haven't haven't done this before. So, or not very often. Uh, let's see. How did you ensure that your voice was heard at ESPN when you first started working there? Um, uh, it wasn't easy. Because when I was hired in 1995, I was hired to do something called the Sports Smash on ESPN2. And what the Sports Smash was, updates at the top and the bottom of the hour on ESPN2. And remember, ESPN2 had just come into existence probably a little less than 18 months prior to me being hired. Sports Smash was uh, integrated in all programming, taped and live, but most notable in um, the old Sports Night show that Stuart Scott and Susie Calber hosted. Kenny Main was uh, a sports smash anchor with me. Uh, Bill Pito uh, had been and had just moved to NHL tonight. Um, Deb Kaufman, who now works at MSG Network, was a sports smash anchor. And when I was hired, I was told, we're trying to create unique identities for each network. Don't come in here asking people to do sports center. So I didn't. And that was a mistake. Now, Timing is everything. If I'd gone in there in two weeks and started, you know, hammering people's door about doing Sports Center, then that would have been a mistake. But at some point, you have to make known what you would like to do. So what I what I tried to do initially was do as good a job as I could, set myself apart by you know writing delivery. Sometimes you stumble over those uh, over those things, as I mentioned earlier with the whole catchphrase phenomenon, but. You have to be reliable, consistent, good, prepared, um, have some presence when you're on camera. And I think that that's the best way to do it. But at some point, depending on where you are, you know, what, what your organization is like, you might have to go to the people who make the decisions and say, this is what I want to do and I think I'm good at it. Um, that's kind of how, after I sort of learned my lesson there, I kind of pushed my way into college football. Um, I'd gotten an opportunity to do college basketball reps in studio, and I think I opened some eyes there that I handled what you know is not always the easiest assignment and, and handled it well. And I was able to sort of use that 
experience to push my way into college football and and it fortunately for me has has worked out for me someone tells me i might need some dapper dan well i tell you what uh i won't take any fop i'll guarantee you that uh favorite guest that we've had on college game day man uh, there have been a lot of them uh on the old brother where art thou i was thrilled to have john goodman on at lsu for the LSU Alabama game this year because he was Big Dan Teague and old brother. Matthew McConaughey was awesome at Texas, but I think my all-time favorite guest picker because he is so willing to help us uh, and will do his James Franklin and do bits for us and stuff is Keegan Michael Key. He is uh, he, he's hilarious. He loves the sport, loves Penn State, and uh, he's been a he's been a great uh, a great friend of the show, as we say. What co-host do you flow easy with? Um, well, you know, I, I hope all of them. I'm close to all of them. But, uh, you know, as you look over here in basketball, my guy Jay Billis and I have been working together for a long time. And he is uh, he is brilliant. I'm, I think I'm really fortunate to, to work with Jay and to work with Kirk, who to me are uh, the two best guys at what they do. So those guys make it really easy. David Pollock and I are really close. Um, I, I'm really, I'm, I understand how fortunate I am. My guys in both football and basketball are all uh, tremendous. Uh, you know, I see Desmond Howard over there. Desmond does, uh, does a great job. And, uh, and certainly LaFonzo Wellis and I have become great friends in basketball. And Seth, I don't have a guy, Seth Greenberg too. Um, coach, coach, oh, I got to tell you. Yeah, I like to do impressions of coaches. Um, all of my guys are unselfish. They're easy to work with, and uh, and I think that's really important. I think you know, since this is uh, this is Ernie's school, I think that's part of the magic of their show. Is their guys respect each other, they like each other, and they uh, you know, and they flow easily. <laughs> Someone asked, "Would I have traded broadcast career for five seasons in the NBA?" Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's five years versus I've been at ESPN 25 now, not to mention the years in local that I that I cherish as well. Uh, someone wants to know, was it a hard transition going from local TV to national TV? Actually, quite the opposite. In the local stations where I worked, particularly my first couple, uh, you had to do everything. I mean, you wanted to uh, shoot a stand-up and get yourself on on TV in your story. You had to set up a light stand, set up your camera on a tripod, focus the the camera on a knob on the tripod, zoom out to where about the height you needed to be, and then go over and throw the light stand out of the way and stand right where it was and hope that you shot it right. Um, you had to edit all your tapes. You, I had to tear apart my scripts most places and deliver them to all of the, you know, all of the different people who needed them, the directors and the, and so forth. And the, uh, teleprompter operators, which we don't use anymore on the shows that I do, but back in the day, you had to deliver scripts. You had to put what the Chiron or the font was going to be. You had to do every full screen. You had to do it all. So in some ways, making the move from local to national um, was easier because you could focus on what you were good at. Um, so I think that aspect of it actually made it easier. But there's no, there's no question that there is a different type of of pressure that goes with it when you are 
when you are stepping in to a place and after I'd been there, I guess, nine or 10 months, I started doing some sports center and you're stepping in the, and, and sitting in the chair where, uh, Keith Olbermann, uh, sat, who I think is probably the best guy to ever do sports center, all facets when it, you know, delivery, personality, knowledge, uh, unique character, all of those things. But, you know, Keith and Dan, who's just, you know, Dan's brilliant, uh, you know, in terms of being genuine and a, a textbook for broadcasters. Chris Berman built the place. All those guys sat in that chair. There's certainly some, uh, you know, there, there's pressure that goes with that. But in terms of execution, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a lot easier to, uh, to work at ESPN or, or for a network than it is to work in local TV. My advice for college journalism students right now to continue getting reps in. There's no substitute for live reps. I don't know why. If I did, I would market it and sell it and probably do quite well with it. There's something about the pressure of it actually being on an outlet that matters. And I don't know why, but it accelerates improvement in my judgment. But in the meantime, that does not mean that you should forego opportunities to set up your phone and record yourself calling a game or prepare a sportscast and practice or do it in front of a mirror. Uh, probably better to do it on your phone so you can go back and watch it, uh, which is, um, I think, a lot of us would acknowledge that reviewing shows is altogether unpleasant. Um, especially if you have a little bit of a perfectionist tendency there, you can, you can kind of get, you can kind of get caught up in, in every little flaw that you have, but I would say you still have to do it. Um, so set up, do your sports cast, record it, critique it, show it to people whose judgment that you value, um, and just continue to practice. Be honest with what the flaws are, um, compare them, uh, Comparison is the thief of joy, but you, if you watch um, guys like, uh, you know, like Scott Van Pelt or you know, any, anybody on a national stage or even a local stage that you think does the job well, and then compare your recording to what you see from them. I'm not saying to copy them. I'm just saying, are there areas? People used to call me and ask me, you know, what can I do to back when Dan Patrick worked for us? Um, and they would say, what can I do to get better at anchoring? What can I do to be a sports center anchor? I said, watch Dan Patrick. I said, he does it better than anybody. I said, now look, that doesn't mean you should go, Good! you know, when, when somebody makes a shot. It doesn't mean you should mimic his catchphrases or his delivery. But watch his presence on the set. Watch when he uses pauses. Uh, watch how he delivers, what he pays attention to. Watch how he uses, um, I don't want to say dead air, but you lets moments breathe. Watch all of those things because the guy's a textbook at that. And so I think that you can do the same thing as a journalism student who might be uh, robbed of a few reps right now because we don't have sports. You can pull up old games, record yourself doing it, prepare a sports cast from uh, days gone by, record yourself doing it. The repetition uh, will Im will help you improve, and then I really believe that the live reps help you improve uh, more than more than anything else. Why was Washington State my favorite game day location? Because of the crusade, and that's what it was that uh, Cougar Nation had to get the show there, and then once they 
uh, once they accomplished that goal. I mean, 15 years, every show for 15 years, Old Crimson, the flag showed up. And then once they got it there, they delivered above and beyond in terms of hospitality, in terms of energy in the crowd, in terms of crowd size. Uh, everything you could want um, was wrapped into that morning in Pullman. It was, uh, it was great. It, it was tremendous. <laughs> uh, Joan Mack, it says, is Dabo the easiest interview? Ask one question, then just sit back and listen for the rest of the time. That can happen from time to time. I, I like Dabo. I like interviewing Dabo because I think he's a really honest guy. And also, uh, uh, he and I are, are friendly. Uh, I always, and the reason I say it that way is this. I don't, friends are people who um, you go on vacation with and different things. I think in business contexts like this, more often it's more accurate to say that you're friendly um, with coaches, and there are certainly some exceptions here and there, but uh, I'm very friendly with Dabo. I think a lot of him as a, as, certainly as a coach and as a person too, but uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes uh, your question list, you don't get very deep into the question list uh, with him. <laughs> uh, somebody said, did you have an easy job doing uh, stand-up, meaning what I was talking about earlier, when you um, shoot yourself on camera? He said he has to do about 20-ish takes, do it until you get it right. Um, you know, it's not a race to make sure that you get finished the quickest unless you are on deadline. But I would say here, here's a tip that might help you in terms of if you're having to do a lot of takes, then I would guess that that means you're, and it's just a guess, I would guess that you are trying to memorize what you want to say. Uh, I think there are a couple of problems with memorization, trying to memorize a, a lead um, to a piece without prompter, which is not what I do on game day or trying to memorize a you know, 20, 30 second standup. At some point, you are just reciting what you remember and you start feeling that anxiety or am I going to miss a word? A better way to do it for me and maybe for you, maybe you want to try this too if you're having trouble executing your standups or your leads without use of a prompter. Um, an easier way for me is, is I do pretty much write it because I know what I want to say. I, I'll write game day on the Friday night before, but I don't try to memorize it. I write it as a tool to make sure I know what I want to say. Does that make sense? I mean, you're, the subject matter, the things that you want to hit, the, the little turns of phrase that are important, how you might most effectively communicate that. But I would advise to avoid trying to memorize it. There might be others who say that they do. I think it's more difficult because if you try to memorize it, I think it creates some internal anxiety of trying to get through it without messing up. And then there's always that little something in the back of your head. If you have, say, a 30-second stand-up and you get to 25 and you know that you have just one more phrase to get out and you go, bleh, 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 you know, and you stumble over it and you mess it up. So I think you're better off if you just use it, uh, write it so you know what you want to say, and then kind of just internally know what the main points are that you want to make and make them in a conversational fashion. Because rarely in conversation do we go through things and misspeak to the point that we feel like that we have to do it all over again, but we do it all the time when we're trying to record things that, uh, that we're trying to memorize. Um, 
what advice do you have for being successful at hosting when you have three analysts to involve? That's a great question from Warriors WBN. The number one thing is know the strengths of your analyst. Know what subject matter gets them going and what they will be most passionate and most definitive about. Uh, recognize that all of you on the set are teammates and that you know, I've seen situations, I'm lucky to have not been involved in any situations like this, but I've seen it at our network and others, where there's competition among the analysts in a bad way. Uh, good competition is guys trying to make sure that they elevate each other. Bad competition is trying to steal each other's points, trying to make sure that you have so many points and you go so long that, um, you know, that the other guy doesn't have a lot to, to say, or he has to go in a completely different direction, or you leave him in a difficult spot. As the host, you're responsible for that. You can't always fix it, because a lot of that depends on the personalities uh, involved, but you have to manage that. If that means you have to step in and cut somebody off, um, you have to do that. Hopefully that's not your situation. The, the thing I would say, though, is make sure everybody gets their touches because everybody's out there um, and they have a, a level of expertise and preparation that deserves to be heard. So make sure everybody gets their touches. You're probably always going to have somebody on that set that you think, OK, I know that person will get us off to a good start in the conversation. And it also doesn't hurt ahead of time. It is, you know, you know, the different things that you want to talk about is, you know, Hey, you know, having some conversations on the side, you know, I'll do that. I'll say, David, you know, Desmond, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? I'll do it privately and see, and then you can kind of uh, factor in your mind um, where they're really strong. And then, you know, don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to interject, but not interrupt. Interruption is rude. Interjection is conversation. You can interject things to steer the discussion in the direction that you want it to go with your analyst. One of your analysts starts veering or going too long. It's okay to find a spot in there and interject it and say, you know, and and move the move the ball, so to speak. So I would say that would be the that would be a, a big a big part of it when you have three analysts to involve and encourage them to talk to you and talk to each other. Not at the exclusion of the audience, but encourage them to talk to the group that the four of you are having a conversation. That's that's the biggest thing. And the, the number one thing as a host is you are responsible not for putting your teammate in a bad spot. I mean, if you know that a guy uh, or a, a woman, if your partner is not, um, I don't want to say as well-versed, but maybe, maybe they don't feel strongly about something or maybe they have um, a judgment of a situation that you know is not going to play just right, don't put them in a bad spot. Protect them. That's uh, that's your job as a host. That's part of your job. Big part of it uh, to me. Uh, okay, quick game day question. I know I said mostly journalism. Minnesota, uh, Penn State, LSU, Alabama for game day. Controversy this year. More important. Best teams. Or what's more important? Best teams or new places? It's it depends on the circumstance. You can't in that game last year. You can't pass on LSU, Alabama. You can't. I mean. Um, 
you know, as it turns out, not only was it a great game, which doesn't always matter, but it was the biggest storyline of the day. Minnesota-Penn State was a huge story. No question about it. And the best case scenario would have been if those two weeks had been staggered and we could have done both. But uh, not just the numbers of the rankings, but the significance, uh, the the background, the rivalry, the whole thing, all of those things carried the day. Now, that said, we like very much to go to new places because there's a freshness and energy about that when we go to a place where we either have never been or a place that values football where we haven't been for a long time. Okay, with regard to big moments, do you plan out the final words or ad lib in the moment? And I'm assuming this is uh, calling games, and I would say I do not plan the words in the moment. I will plan the words, or at least the subject matter, uh, leading in from a studio standpoint to a national championship game or going into college game day every week. But when I call a game, uh, I call the Texas LSU game this year. I did not have uh, something planned uh, for you know a big moment where LSU wins on the road or Texas, if Texas had won, Texas winning at home or, you know, Joe Burrow arrives as the real Joe Exotic, even though I know we didn't know who Joe Exotic was then. Um, so if I'm calling a game, the answer is no. Um, I just say what what comes to mind. You know, you are prepared, but I'm assuming you're talking about uh, definitive, declarative moments when a game or a championship or something is won. Um, I think studio work or hosting work is a better way to put it since I'm on site most of the time. I think hosting work is a little different, and I think you do uh, plan out the things to set the stage. But once the stage has been set and the play has come to a conclusion, I think you're better served to um, react in the moment and rely on your preparation and your feel for what has just happened. Okay, but personally, I don't like college sports. Julian, you don't know what you're missing here, Julian Winters. Uh, but as an aspiring sports broadcaster, I should. Uh, just just go to a big-time college football game. Uh, one of the big SEC schools, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan, Penn State, Oregon. Uh, great place to go to games. Texas, Oklahoma. Um Go experience some of those atmospheres once we get back to playing and get uh, and can fill the stadium safely and get back to me. I'll bet you'll I bet you'll like it a lot a lot better. Uh, how can I change that for the betterment of my career? It, you know what? That was uh, this deserves a more serious answer. Um, well, actually, I was serious about that. If you go to those places, I do believe if you like football, if you don't like college basketball, if you don't like college basketball and you can go to a game at Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas or Cameron Indoor at Duke and walk out and still not like college basketball, then you know maybe you ought to avoid covering it because I think your perception will change. But I will give you a an example from my career. I was uh, very early in my career and I'd moved and I was uh, at ESPN. And I was doing a show with uh, the legendary Fred Carter, former 76ers head coach, called NBA Tonight on ESPN2. Um, after a couple of years on that, which I, I really enjoyed the show and I enjoyed the NBA, um, I got a call and Kenny Main is going to SportsCenter and they want me to do RPM tonight, which was the car racing show. And 
I said, uh, I said to the executive who called me and asked me to make the move, I said, um, don't misunderstand, I'm not refusing. I said, but if you think, hey, let's get the guy from Alabama to do the car racing show, I said, you've got the wrong guy. I said, I've been to one race in my life, and it was when I was working in television covering it. I said, now, I can learn it. And, and he said, we, that's what we want you to do. And so I was able to learn that. And, um, and I developed an appreciation for it. I'm not going to mislead uh, Ernie's journalism class and say that I developed a deep passion for it, but I developed an appreciation. And I think if you develop an appreciation, you can give a good, solid, uh, professional job of covering a story um, or covering a sport. I don't think that I would ever have been as good at covering car racing as I hope that I am in covering the sports that I care about. And a couple other examples like that I got a chance to do for a few years, the ancillary programming around the Triple Crown races. We didn't have at uh, ESPN ABC at the time coverage of the actual races, but we had a lot, with the exception of Belmont. Um, we had the races leading up to it. So I got to go to the Derby a few times, um, watched uh, watch one Kentucky Derby just in the um, the patio area right above where Queen Elizabeth showed up to, to watch the race. And I knew zero about horse racing. But when I started, when I got the assignment and I got it a few months in advance, I, I looked up um, an owner, a trainer. Uh, I talked to people who knew it. I spent a lot of time, uh, Chris Felica helped me with that. A guy named Jeremy Plonk was instrumental and, and my uh, first on-air horse racing partner was a guy named Kurt Hoover, who absolutely amazed me because I'd spent weeks and weeks pouring over this stuff and learning, uh, learning all of the players and the horses involved and their backgrounds and the jockeys and all of this stuff. And Kurt rolls in and all he had in his hand was the racing form. And he was so eloquent and well-informed and smooth. He could do it just by glancing at the form. And, uh, you know, so I think if you're passionate about certain sports, that will always be your wheelhouse. You're fast going beyond just saying, hey, what are we going to talk about? And um, and just, you know, asking your analyst something. Because I, the producers that work with me, they tease me about this a lot. I hate, hate when a producer tells me, tee up Kirk or tee up Jay on something. And I've let this be known, so it is also something which they mock me about extensively. But my stock response to that is if you want somebody just to tee up a question, well, you know, you can get a trained seal or something. Good hosts are involved in the conversation. It doesn't mean that you argue with David Pollack about the proper uh, use of hands, uh, you know, on a, on a slap move on a pass rush, or you don't argue with um, Lafonso Ellis about proper footwork in the post. But you can have an you can have a judgment of topics. You you can talk all day about whether a coach should have called a timeout or whether he should have gone for it on fourth down or whether running on fourth and three was the right call. All of those things are valid and, and as a host, your preparation entitles you to be able to to be part of that conversation. But you have to know where your lane is. So if you are going into a sport that you don't know as much about as I was when uh, when I went into auto racing or when I went into horse racing, um, you've got to really, you've got to really do some digging and try to develop at least a functional knowledge of it. You'll probably, 
you know, I know I would never have the knowledge of horse racing that Kurt Hoover had or that Chris Felica has. Um, but you can work hard enough to get enough to do uh, to do the, the project justice. And I think that's really important. Uh, someone just asked, how do we prepare or find the best stories for college game day? I think a lot of that comes from relationships. It also comes from uh, relentless reading um, because we have people covering everything. We have relationships uh, with coaches all over the place, but there is no way that we can uh, know every intimate detail of of a team the way someone whose sole job is to cover that team. So you read what they write and you find stories. And then I think we also have relationships with sports information people who will share stories with us. We also have a producer named uh, Jonathan Wiley who is extraordinary at digging up these stories and sharing them with us. And we have a, a bank of stories that we start talking about in the summer that uh, here are some stories that are worthy to be told. Um, you know, some of them are shot in the summer. I remember, uh, you know, we've had stories on game day when uh, Adam Griffith, the Alabama kicker who was adopted, went back to Poland. You know, we had um, to, to meet his, bio, or not to meet, but to be reunited with his biological parents. We, you know, we shot that story ahead of time. We knew about that human interest story and we prepared it in advance. Other ones we kind of have in a file that we are prepared to do. Some have been shot and some will be shot during the season and we just wait and see how the season unfolds and see if maybe telling C.D. Lamb's backstory is one that fits a particular week. And, and so that's kind of how we go at it. So a variety of ways, your relationships with uh, coaches, relationships with uh, uh, trainers or personal trainers, uh, relationships with sports information people, and also being diligent and reading uh, as much as you humanly can that is written by the people whose job it is to cover one team. And there are so many great ones now out there that cover the teams, not only um, in the traditional way of local newspapers, there are plenty of those, but you also, uh, I hate to give a plug to a near competitor, but uh, uh, The Athletic has done an amazing job with their various writers who are, who are covering particular teams, and it is just a wealth of uh, of story ideas and uh, and information and, and things like that. So you can uh, you can find it in a in a variety of ways. The key is is once you find out a story, use it as an idea, and then go and be able to tell the story from the perspective of our reporters. And and that's and that's what we do. You know, nobody has has the market cornered on someone's backstory. But, you know, if you become aware of it, uh, then you can go and, I don't want to say put your spin on it, but you can go and tell it from the perspective of the questions that you ask and the conversation that you have with those players. What creates guys to change their names? Uh, oh, I, I'm assuming that you mean, um, mean people, on-air people, to change their names. <sighs> You know, I don't know that that, I'm sure it happens some. I don't know that that happens a lot in broadcasting. Maybe it does. Maybe you, you know some things that I do, but it's probably an agent or a, or a news director at a local level who said, you know, this name sounds this way or that. Why don't you try this? Or, or have you thought about doing something that's easier to remember? You know, I mean, all of, all of those kinds of things, too, I think are, are probably part of it. I don't know if it helps getting noticed or not, because I think sometimes a distinctive name could also help you get noticed. So I think that would just be a, um, be a personal decision.
How do you go about, Zach wants to know, how do you go about networking in this business? When you're starting to try to climb the ladder, that is a, looking for your next step is almost a full-time job. It should never, um, you should never compromise the job you have pursuing the job you want. Your first priority is always to do the absolute best job you can for the people who are employing you in the moment. But I understand if you're, you know, not making much money and you have a, a lot of aspirations and uh, you have goals that you want to achieve that you have to pursue those. So that becomes a, a full-time job. I think trying to find that balance between uh, being persistent and not uh, pestering is really important. I think uh, any connections you have that you can mine with people who are in the business to get advice because people, I mean, look, look at all of us who come on here. Everybody likes to give advice, right? <laughs> Sometimes we as humans have a little more trouble taking it than we do giving it, but most people are, are willing to help. And as long as you find that line between being persistent and reaching out to people and, and not, uh, you know, going to the point where people start wondering, why does this person call me every day? You know, I think that sometimes that looks better on paper than it does in function. So find a, a way to be persistent with trying to meet people as opposed to uh, pestering them and uh, just mine any connection you can. I think wherever you're in school, if there are um, alumni from that particular school, that's often a really, really good place to start in terms of starting to develop relationships that can, that can benefit you as well. But asking for advice is a, is a really good way to start networking um, in the business. Um, I have, uh, Jacob wants to know about um, Todd McShay, who wasn't able to help us with the draft coverage. He's um, fighting off um, uh, COVID-19 after testing positive for the coronavirus. I've sent him messages, haven't talked to him yet, and certainly I, I joined Jacob in offering prayers for him. But Todd's doing well, from what I understand. He's recovering. It's just been, uh, as for so many people, um, it's been it's a difficult thing to fight off, and he's he's been doing been doing very well. Um, how has social media impacted our job day to day and on college game day days? It a lot, and for I think for someone my age and someone who might be a, a little uh, a little private about personal life and stuff like that you you try to again find that balance between letting people know what it's like uh, behind the scenes and giving them content that they might uh, enjoy um, I think that that has it has been a challenge it's something that is necessary because it's part of our world I don't think it's wise for um, people who've been in the business who to dismiss it, but you should pick the platform that that you're most comfortable with and try to connect with people as best you can. Um, I don't think it's healthy mentally to become obsessive about every negative comment because very rarely do we, you know, back when we used to be able to go to restaurants, do you, um, you know, write a big letter to the editor or go put some type of uh, Yelp review if everything was amazing. You might, but boy, I tell you what, you want to vent if you're mad about something, right? So that's a little, a little bit of a skewed sample size. So I think you can't let it impact your performance by being obsessive over, um, over every little reaction that you get. But at the same time, it's a reality of our world now and you're wise to try to use it. So I try to, 
I probably use Twitter more than anything else. I try to use Instagram a little bit. And one thing that surprised me a little bit, and it was suggested by one of our uh, coordinating producers, is um, a few times a year, maybe I should do it more often, I don't know, but I will be in my hotel room Friday night before game day, and I'll just start recording something like this and talk about what I'm doing to prepare for the show. And I'll flip the phone around sometimes and um, show some of the video that we're going to show on uh, on game day. I'll talk about, uh, I, I did something even as simple as scrolling through the my weekly file and putting the camera on that. And that got a really positive reaction. I had no idea what kind of reaction it would get. So I think the social media impact has been that people want access to how we prepare to do our jobs and things that they don't ordinarily get to see. And uh, so we've tried to provide that as, as much as we can. Um, Southern Miss student, how would you advise smaller school students to uh, to stay small and work our way up. I'm not sure what you mean there by staying small. I, I assume you mean staying at the smaller school. Um, that's that shouldn't be a hindrance at all. Um, you education is uh, largely what you make of it. Experience is really important. Uh, just try to get as much experience as you can and do the things that we've talked about today in terms of networking and preparing to move up the ladder. I don't. I don't think that would be a detriment in your career uh, in the least. <laughs> okay, someone from Michigan State says, remember when the lottery ball machine didn't work for game day this past season at Michigan State? Yes, I remember that. But I think it brings up a good point. When you do live television, things are going to go wrong. And you have to be prepared for it. And if you freak out um, or get all nervous and uncomfortable, then the people at home are going to get nervous and uncomfortable and freak out or, or heaven forbid, worse yet, turn the, turn the channel. You don't want that. Um, for those of you who might not have seen it, we had, um, we we're doing a lottery ball uh, bit on College Game Day, and we had an actual lottery ball machine that our producer had, uh, was really, really excited about. But our director and camera guys were like, you know what, it plugs in. So it's going to look awful to have that big cord running out to it from the place where you wanted to shoot it. So they rigged up a battery and the battery was supposed to power the uh, machine. And just in case that something went wrong with the battery, they had a backup plan that they could quickly uh, rush the stage manager over and pop up and just plug the thing in uh, by pulling the cord out as a last resort. As it turns out, right before the segment, uh, somehow uh, the cord got taken away rather than just hidden, so it wasn't there. And even though we had tested uh, on Friday the battery, and we had tested it on Saturday morning, and it worked flawlessly uh, when the show came on for what for reasons that people still don't know why the battery failed. It just, you know, it just didn't work as it had before. So. Um, we laughed about it. We laughed at the stage manager who was crawling on his uh, on his hands and knees in desperate search for the cord. And then you go on. And that's, uh, I think it's really important. Things are going to go wrong. I once had, when I was working in local TV, and this is a horrible, horrible comedy bit, but you know, you're local, you try stuff, sometimes you, you do the wrong thing. Um, the Falcons drafted uh, one year, they drafted Lincoln Kennedy. So I did the, the old tried and true 
uh, Lincoln and Kennedy parallels that I'm sure you've all seen between President Lincoln and President Kennedy. And then you'd may try to write a joke about, you know, President Lincoln did this, President Kennedy did that. And Lincoln Kennedy does this. So in pure coincidence, as I got to the last joke, uh, if you want to call it that, I don't even remember what the joke was, but when I got to the last line that I prepared for Lincoln Kennedy, uh, the former offensive lineman, as I said that, a light exploded in the studio and it sounded like a gunshot. And people thought that, including, uh, including my general manager at the station, uh, thought that we had planted a sound effect which was not the case at all. It might have been ill-advised to attempt comedy, but I, we certainly didn't do anything like that. So what we did was, it was the end of the segment, you kind of reacted, you just kind of kept going, and we came back, and I, as we were going off the air, I said, look, and I held up with, uh, with a rag around it because it was hot. I held up the light and said, look, we, we didn't have any sound effect of that last little Lincoln Kennedy bit. It was coincidence, and here's the light that exploded. So you have to you have to handle mishaps as they come along and try to make them as comfortable as you can and be honest about them. People people see it when things mess up, so you just kind of just kind of go on and do it. Like, oh, geez, I'm supposed to have let you guys out of class already. So let me scroll down and find. Uh, uh, Ernie told me this hour would go fast. Turns out an hour and eight minutes have gone fast. Um, I'll, I'll end on this one. Uh, the real C. Griff wants to know, is it tough to keep track of the conversation going on between the analysts while listening to producers? The best producers only talk to you and tell you what you need to know. It's not like they're uh, in your ear constantly. There certainly are exceptions to that. So primarily, you should always be listening to your analyst and just sort of develop the sense of when to listen to the producer. Um, I, I work with guys who have a real strong uh, innate ability to know when to tell you something. There are times when things unfold and you have no way of getting the information and you have to be fed like in that old movie broadcast news where they're talking in the guy's ear and he's in your, if not reciting it, putting it in your own words. Uh, we've had situations like that on game day uh, with, um, you know, maybe a player got in trouble the night before. I know, I remember when the incident, I'll, I'll, Fortunately, it was not a terribly serious one, but it was one that had to be addressed with JT Barrett when he was at Ohio State. Um, that came clear just as we were going on the air. So the producer had to talk to me in broadcast news fashion and tell me what was being reported, and, and you have to be able to handle that. Um, I think that's just a part of it. You might have the ability to do it. For others, it might be more difficult, but a lot of it is a practiced skill. But in terms of... Um, the conversation flows. Good producers know when they can get to you and um, and you can have the ability to listen to the producer and grasp what he's trying to get you to say or get you to do or the um, things that you need to know to guide the show to the next place that may have changed. And that's most typically when they talk to you and what the and what the analysts are saying there in the conversation so that you can keep that going smoothly as well. Um, 
Hey guys, I really, really enjoyed this. I appreciate all of you coming in and I apologize for those of you who I've uh, kept too long in class. That's not, uh, not very good professorial work to make class run too long, but thanks for that. All of you stay safe and healthy and my best to all of your families out there. And thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. And thanks to Ernie for setting it up. He's a, he's a great guy and I'm, uh, I'm happy to call him a friend. You guys be good. Take care. Thank you for tuning into this episode of VJ's Game Plan. For more information on today's guest and breaking into the sports media industry, go to our website, www.ejsgameplan.com. Tune in every week to hear from more guests on their experience in the media industry. EJ's Game Plan is brought to you by Ernie Johnson Jr., the University of Georgia's new media institute, and Grady Sports.